Hello, everybody. Welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. My name is Peter Ravella, and I'm the co-host of this show. And my name is Tyler Buckingham, and I'm the other co-host of the show. Well, what a great day in Austin, Texas. We've got a special guest with us today that we're going to get to in a few minutes. I'd like to welcome Ellis Pickett to the American Shoreline Podcast. Uh, Ellis is the founder, the t- founder of, uh, let's see, the creator of the uh, Surfrider Foundation in Texas, and is currently the uh, chairman of the Upper Texas Coast chapter of the Surfrider Foundation here in Texas. And uh, Ellis, great to have you in Austin, and great to have you on the American Shoreline Podcast. Welcome. I certainly appreciate the invitation. Well, it's great to have Ellis here. You know, uh, the legislative session has just kicked off here in Texas. Of course, uh, Austin being the capital of Texas, uh, we're fortunate to intercept great folks like Ellis uh, lobbying the uh, legislature. Uh, So we thought we'd get him on the show and and chat a little bit about what uh, the legislative agenda is. But but for me, probably most most importantly, learn a little bit about little bit about the the history of surfing and the beach culture in Texas, which is really rich and cool. And as a California boy, it was really interesting to learn about this whole other coast that's kind of forgotten. Well, it is. And uh, people don't think of surfing in Texas. I think they sure think about surfing in California, especially where you're from, Tyler and Ventura. But there is a rich history of surfing uh, in Texas. And uh, Ellis is going to walk us down that path in a little bit. But before we jump into our discussion uh, with Ellis, we got a few things to update our listeners on. Uh, and Tyler, I think I am just very happy to see the American Shoreline Podcast Network, which, as our listeners know, is a collection of podcasts dedicated to high-level conversation about the American Shoreline is really starting to round out, and we got some just killer stuff coming. 2018 was a was the year we started the American Shoreline Podcast Network, and it was an idea to bring this this cadre of uh, thought leaders from across the coastal space together on one platform and to create a conversation that needs to happen. And it's really cool here. We're in 2019 now, one month in, and the network has uh, is starting to blossom, and it it's just really awesome. Uh, we wanted to take a, a quick second, go th- down th- some of the, the shows that have appeared now on the network and uh, some that are about to appear. Well, you know, uh, this week was a great week for a couple of shows. Robert Jones and the Catch Curd podcast. Uh, first episode, debut episode uh, was this week. Fishery show. Fishery show. Robert, Catch Curd, Robert Jones is an expert on federal fisheries policy. Uh, he sat down with Shannon Tompkins, uh, who is the last full-time hunting and fishing and outdoor writer at any newspaper in the state of Texas. He's been at the Houston Chronicle for 30, was it seven or nine years? Almost 40. Almost 40 years. And when he retires, they are not replacing his position. This was a lost art. in This is a lost art in America. The outdoor writers who, who kept track of the environment back in the day and talked to the hunters and fishermen and really brought the issues to the fore. Shannon Tompkins and Robert Jones on the Catch Curd Podcast is a great show. It's on the network right now. Uh, we also launched the Waterlog Podcast uh, with Howard Marlowe and Dan Ginolfi. Uh, this is a... This is one of two uh, outstanding federal policy 
shows that we have along with the Capitol Beach and Derek Brockbank. Mm-hmm. Uh, January, we welcomed both of those shows on the network. Uh, and boy, it's great to have their uh, expert voices on talking about, of all things, federal policy. And of course, this past month happened to over, uh, over, uh, now, what's the word I'm looking the for? The shutdown? Yeah, it, it it happened at the same time as the, as the there shutdown. Was, there was a little a break in the action up there. There was there a break D- in the action. D.C., both shows from Washington, D.C. That's right. And uh, they did a great job covering that. And, uh, boy, we kicked off with the Capitol Beach, Senator Carper. That's yep. great to great to bring those kind of voices to the network. Uh, Dan Martin. Dan yeah. Martin uh, was active in 2018, but has come in with a flurry yep. here out of Chicago. Uh, and uh, that polar vortex just really, he was home, you know, it was snowing, it was cold out. He wasn't going outside. No, he got busy making shows. So uh, he's got a couple more shows up. But it, listen to this Main Street Design uh, show about interpretive planning and design. Really interesting stuff. Great any any coastal mayor any coastal city manager wants to get the most out of their natural spaces their uh, educational uh, installments and what what have you mm-hmm. and this show really goes into that it's really great yeah let me uh, uh, Dan Martin is and you guys will get to know Dan Martin uh, as you listen to his shows on the network and you can go back and listen to Dan's interview and get to know him personally but he is a recreational economist who works on tourism around the world uh he's his client list is is kind of stunning i think he was hired to work with the country of saudi arabia on their national park system to give you a flavor but dan this main street design conversation was great he sits down with a couple of the pros who designed the exhibits and the facilities at aquariums and at zion national park and how do you interpret and how do you draw tourists and for beach communities around the u.s that depend on tourism these are the pro guys who work through the economics and the education of these facilities and creating these facilities and i just think it's the kind of stuff that dan's gonna jump into uh so really great to see dan active uh hopefully when the weather warms up he'll still be doing some good shows yeah dan dan's (laughs) not the only one uh of course our listeners are very familiar with the work of Jenna Valente and the Sea Change podcast. Uh, she just had Melissa Kaiser on talking about the iconic Haystack Rock. Uh, on the Oregon coast. On the Oregon coast. Cannon Beach, Oregon. Beautiful out there. In uh, a, a great interview. Uh, Jenna's stuff is fantastic. Yep. And we also welcomed Bob Frump to the network. We, needed, we knew we needed to get somebody to cover uh, the world of the maritime ports and shipping that's just a world that I had no idea how to even approach that. But yeah. lo and behold, we found Bob Frump, and uh, he's hosting an awesome show. Uh, episode one, uh, Andy Maykuth of the Philadelphia Inquirer. They actually worked together mm-hmm. uh, back in the day, and they talked about the dredging of the Delaware River, current operations at the Port of Philadelphia, and just a, a really interesting uh, show that we... Uh, put out on last friday yeah uh so give that one a listen if you haven't done so yet uh, we also have some exciting shows that have not yet appeared on mm. the network but they're going to the shorewards coastal literature podcast hosted by leslie ewing and we are thrilled to have delta dispatches uh on our air with jockey bear and simone malaz yeah i think uh tyler these are the kind of the 
emerging shows. And uh, for those of you out there who are uh, falling in love with the American Trollline Podcast Network, these uh, we're not planning on growing too much more, but Leslie Ewing show on Coastal Books and Literatures, we've talked about a lot. Uh, Leslie, very experienced uh, coastal professional and lifelong uh, lover of the coast, uh, senior coastal engineer for the California Coastal Commission on top of it all, going to be a really, really great show. Delta Dispatches, which is a show out of New Orleans, Louisiana, with a couple of great hosts. They've they've been in existence for a while as a radio show in New Orleans, and we're going to be carrying Delta Dispatches as a weekly show. I'm really looking forward to Tyler and I will be on Delta Dispatches on the New Orleans radio system, and uh, they're going to be on the American Shoreline podcast. We'll introduce you to Jacques Hebert and Simone Milaz. They're really smart. They They're covering... Uh, what's happening on the Louisiana coast and the Mississippi River Delta and the billions of dollars in uh, that is being spent on the restoration of the Mississippi River Delta. I think it's so happy to have Delta dispatches and thank you to the uh, Restore the Mississippi Delta organization for bringing that show to uh, ASPN killer that's right and uh if (laughs) as as stoked as we are to to have all of those great shows we have even more to announce we've got the changing sea podcast uh coming on to aspn and uh, the first episode has actually already been recorded and i can't even believe that i'm going to say this yeah but the former president of ireland mary robinson will be the first guest on that show uh Google her up. She is an icon in uh, climate change advocacy and policy. Uh, she, this is this is the type of high caliber international thought leader that uh, we are so pleased to bring to you, the ASPN audience. Yeah, the changing uh, changing waters podcast from Seattle, Washington. Uh, that is being organized and put out by Brad Warren. Uh, he's going to have correspondence on that show. They have a really unique approach to how they're going to handle that podcast. And it's starting with a bang, Mary Robinson, seventh president of Ireland, remade that position internationally, uh, left that position to go to the United Nations as the uh, commissioner of the United Nation Human, Human Rights Commission and was awarded the uh presidential medal of freedom by president obama she's internationally known um she has worked with what's called the elders which is herself kofi annan uh uh desmond jimmy carter jimmy carter and uh nelson mandela traveled around the world this is the caliber of person that mary robinson is she's dedicating her professional life at this point in her career to climate change and the and what's happening on the planet and i think uh we are so looking forward to bringing that show to everybody on aspn and i'm so happy to have the changing waters podcast from seattle washington and brad warren's team up there it's going to be absolutely killer and if that wasn't enough (laughs) we've got another great interview uh that we are putting together we're in the final stages of trying to schedule this thing uh, but we are thrilled to to be welcoming Timothy Gallaudet, uh, the acting administrator of NOAA and the undersecretary uh, of commerce for oceans and atmosphere. Correct. Uh, to our program for an interview, an hour long interview, we hope. 
to really talk about uh, his position and, and how he sees the federal government managing the American shoreline. And uh, I'll tell you what, it's going to be an exciting February on ASPN. Yeah. Be sure to subscribe, rate, review uh, the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Uh, tell your friends about us. Uh, make sure all your colleagues are listening, staying informed. Um, and be sure to check out CoastalNewsToday.com, the best coastal news website in the world, Peter. <laughs> Peter does an amazing job every single day of curating the coastal news from around the United States, around the American shoreline, and indeed around the world. Go to CoastalNewsToday.com and stay informed. Uh, it's yeah. the, it's, it is the best coastal news website in the world. We're very proud of it. We worked very hard to build it, uh, keep it updated. It's expertly curated every day. Peter reads all of these news articles and, and really picks out the, the articles that tell the story of what's happening on the American shoreline. So you can't miss that. Yep. And as I say, Todd, there's always a lot going on on the American shoreline and shorelines around the world. It is the most dynamic geographic space on the planet. The economic interest at play are powerful and dynamic, and you have to keep an eye on it. And I think it makes all of us uh, smarter and better in what we do uh, professionally, either as an advocate for the coast or a operator of a port or operator of a tourism facility or a hotel on the beach. Uh, everybody's got a stake in how the shoreline is managed. And uh, Coastal News Today is uh, the first uh, part of that uh, stool that we're building. Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network to keep you up to speed on what's happening in the world of uh, shorelines around the world. Absolutely. And uh, of course, in order to make all this stuff possible, we need to thank our, our outstanding sponsors. Uh, our first sponsor on today's show is Dune Doctors out of Pensacola, Florida. Dune Doctors is a dune consulting and restoration company. They work all along the Gulf Coast. DuneDoctors.com for more information. That's right. Frederick Barrissette and her team at Dune Doctors, experts in natural restoration with native dew plants, Dune Doctors. Uh, TI Coastal Services from Wilmington, North Carolina, uh, led by Chris Gibson, an incredibly smart and talented coastal engineer who works with lots of beach communities uh, in North Carolina. Really super firm, have done outstanding work. TICoastal.com. Reach out to Chris Gibson. If you're in need of fixing your beach or managing your waterways, TI Coastal Services. And right here in Texas, LJA Engineering, LJA.com. This is a, another great engineering firm. Uh, we've, we've seen their work up and down the Texas coast. It's yeah. always outstanding. They come in on budget. They are responsible. They design uh, environmentally sound and thoughtful projects. Uh, Peter? Yep. Led by Bill Worsham in that division, their coastal engineering uh, crew at LJA, great people. Bill and I, back in the day, were in the regulatory side of the equation at the Texas General Land Office. He's sensitive to the rules and the and, and the environment. They do a great job at LJA. And uh, I want to just remind everybody, please, uh, check out these firms they're absolutely essential to what we're trying to do and to try to bring this uh, content in this program to you guys so want to thank all of our sponsors and if you're interested in being a sponsor of coastal news today go on the website there's a drop down menu for advertising give us a call we'll get your company uh, affiliated with the best coastal news service on, on the planet 
Absolutely. So, Ellis, it's it's great to have you here in Austin uh, on the American Shoreline podcast. Uh, as we mentioned before, I am just so interested in the history of surfing in this state, the history of the, the Open Beaches Act in this state. And, and I, I want to hear a little bit about your story growing up here on the Texas coast and, and how you came to be an icon surfer here in Texas. I don't know if I'm an icon or not, but <laughs> you're an icon of something, Alice. Some people have called me other things, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's great to be here. I really appreciate uh, being involved in this and uh, hope to do more in the future. But uh, I grew up in a small town east of Houston called Liberty. It's the third oldest town in uh, the state. It's got a lot of history there. And my father was a rancher slash fire chief slash city judge, kind of like Andy Griffith. <laughs> and uh he ranching was his uh, obsession and so i was working cows all the time but when i turned 13 the family went down to galveston for a little vacation uh-huh. and the first day there i saw they were renting surfboards for six dollars a half day i rented one and then i went back the next two days and paid ten dollars for the entire day i was thir- i was 13 at the time in this, we don't have to ask how old you are, but what decade are we in here, Ellis? Uh, way back. Way back. <laughs> Come on. Well, <laughs> uh, 60s, would it be? Uh, no. <laughs> well, yes, it would. It was 1963. Okay. 1963. At the beach. But wow. the, the next year I turned 14, I got my driver's license. The dumbest law that the state of Texas has ever had. And what happened then was... You mean the one letting people drive when they're 14? 14 years old. Yeah. That does make uh, no sense to me uh, now. Uh, yes, I'm glad they raised that limit. But uh, I, Dad, when he was looking for the truck, more times than not, it was at the beach instead of the ranch. Mm-hmm. So uh, I just had a great time at the beach. Uh, Galveston was the first place I went to. There was another beach that was a little bit... Galveston was 85 miles from my house. Um, what was it about the beach? I mean, obviously, you, you got into surfing. You rented that board. You started surfing. But when you, were, when you were at the beach, were you always surfing? Or were you just hanging out? Was it, there some, was it something about being there beyond the sport of surfing that, that drew you there all the time? I, I don't know. I just loved the beach. First time I ever went there, I was five years old. And we had yeah. pictures of me and my friends building sandcastles out there. And uh, that's kind of analogous to building a front row beach house let, let me ask a quick question <laughs> yeah. here so this is in 1963 you're 14 years old you discover surfing you're the son of a rancher is this the sort of cowboy boots cowboy hat kind of life that you were involved in up there in liberty and is that kind of what you guys did every day did you work cattle did you you know hunted fish work cattle yeah went swimming yeah, you know, one of the funny things about my mom when I was young, uh, when I wanted to do something and she didn't want me to to do it, she'd say, "I guess if everyone else jumped in the lake, you would too." That was a really, really <laughs> poor argument on her part know, because that's a good idea. <laughs> because I was usually the first one in the lake. <laughs> but, yeah, so so you uh, you would you would spend all your time on the beach, uh, and this was at a point where goodness it was the 60s texas i mean you would drive right on the beach i'm sure absolutely uh, as a matter of fact that 56 gmc pickup with the headache rack and the toolbox in the back and yeah. the guns behind the seat uh i drove up and down the coast from uh, sabine pass almost all the way to 
Mexico. Wow. Cutting donuts the whole time. Uh, back then, wow. when I was in high school, I would drive down the west end of the Galveston seawall. And at that time, there was a ramp where you could drive straight onto the beach and drive all the way to the San Luis Pass on the west end, 18 miles away. Or if it was uh, wintertime and the surf was up, I could drive down there, make a U-turn, and go back to town and park in front of the seawall on the beach. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. No moss, really. Uh, no. Yeah. No. No, it's... It's not the way we do it anymore, but uh, boy, that's a romantic period of time to to think back to. You know, there is something historic about that too, which is that you know the beach was kind of the first road in Texas historically. That's how people would move around. It's true in California too. You know, absolutely. That's one of the reasons why uh, we have the right to drive on the beach is because it was used. There were stagecoaches, and, right. and the mail was delivered by going down the beach because there were no roads inland. Yeah. Well, it is. A, it's it's a beautiful stretch of shoreline. I think that for those uh, folks who are listening that have never been to the Texas coast, you probably don't think about it when you think of your magical beach in your mind's eye. But uh, the Texas coast is a gorgeous shoreline. Uh, barrier islands along, I would say, not quite all of it, but most of it. Damn near the whole stretch, 387 miles. 387 right? miles of shoreline. It's a long, that's a lot of beach. It's, it's a lot of beach. And you, you don't think about Texas as being home to that much shoreline, but it is. And of course, where you have that much shoreline and that kind of Texas attitude of, you know, there's something about the cowboy attitude and the surfer attitude that are kind of similar. Oh, do you there's, think? That's okay. That's a great question. Totally. The, the, you oh, sur- yeah. We were talking about it since, yesterday. Since you surf both, alone. Since you're both of them, <laughs> what is, the, what is the, the connection between the surfer attitude and the cowboy ranching attitude? Uh, well, uh, surfers, uh, surfing is an individual sport. Yeah. It's not a team sport. So when you're out there sitting on your surfboard bobbing up and down with 20 other people that you may know or may not, about the only thing that's said in, in most cases is my wave. Yeah. Or maybe someone will be real nice and say, hey, nice wave, guy. That's about it. I mean, we're, we're individuals. Uh, organizing surfers is like herding chickens. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so would this be, to take this analogy one step further, uh, you know, the, I, the, the cowboy on the horse, you're out there. You don't say a lot, right? I mean, there's not any, a lot of people to talk to. It's the water horse. You're surfboard. You're out there. You sit. You kind of sit the same way when you're sitting up. You straddle it. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's a little bit. You know, I it's mean, like there's a saddle, a, and it kind of bobs like a horse when you're. <laughs> okay. That's, well, I I do think that there's just a Western. I mean, surfing is a Western sport, and uh, I think it has a lot to do with what you were talking about the the solitude of it, collecting your thoughts, um, being communing with nature by yourself. Even if you're out there with a in a group of twenty other surfers, like you say, you're not. It's not like you're chit chatting it up. It's it's almost a communion. It's almost a uh, there's a respect of of nature in the space, and uh, which is really cool. And it's it it totally overlays with kind of this Western ethos yeah. of the cowboy alone on the horse, walk riding out over the horizon with with nothing but his. Uh, his or her own, you know, cunning and guile to kind of work your way through life and death on the on the plains and in the mountains. I mean, come on, there's there's totally a similarity. Hmm. Yeah, I, and, you know, if you want to get away from the, you know, the 
the problems that you have in your life, you can just go get on a surfboard and have a great time. You don't have to think about that stuff. Yeah. You know, Sean Tompkins talked about that on the Next Well podcast with Rob Nixon about the intimacy and the emotional power mm-hmm. of surfing, which was a really amazing interview. Oh, yeah. Sean's a spiritual guy when it comes to surfing. Yeah. <laughs> a great surfer, too. Yeah. World champion. Right. World champion legend. Um, but anyway, so... so Tell me about the Texas surfing culture back in the 60s. I mean, what kind of folks were you seeing? Were, were you seeing a lot of surfboards in the water back then? Well, let me go back a little further than that. Yeah, for sure. Back to the 1930s. Oh, wow. Uh, there was actually surfers in Texas at that time. Senator Babe Swartz, uh, who has been my mentor for the last 20 years, uh, he was a surfer in Galveston. Uh, another famous person who surfed in Galveston at that time was Dr. Dorian Paskowitz, who both of those passed away fairly recently. Mm-hmm. Doc Paskowitz uh, raised, I don't know, five or seven kids in a camper, m- moving around the country, around the world, just being a doctor and surfing all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just. I think I saw a documentary about this uh, There, There was a, a documentary about him. Yeah. And, uh, well, it, it's just so much fun out there there there's you can get out there and enjoy the the, yeah. the waves the power i mean one of the most amazing things you can have when you're surfing you can have a six second ride that's the best ride you've ever had in your life you can also have a 30 second ride that's the best ride you've ever had in your life mm-hmm. if you look at pro surfing contest yeah those rides last six to eight seconds they're in the best well, waves that's in the like, world, and it's they're like, wonderful. It's like riding a bull. That's an eight-second deal in the uh, National Rodeo Association. Uh, the the landing is a lot easier, and the, <laughs> and, and, the, you, and you don't get shit on your shoes. You ab- know what I mean? Absolutely, <laughs> or in your face. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm curious to know when you were a kid growing up surfing in Texas, was it was it main? Were you? Did you get weird looks with your board in the back of the truck? Absolutely. We got weird looks anyway because we didn't have buzz haircuts. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we got pulled over by the DPS one day going to the beach, and we all had long hair, and uh, they hassled us for about 20 minutes before they let us go. It's just... We, we looked like we were juvenile delinquents. I yeah, guess, and a bunch mind. of hippies going to the beach. That was before hippies, man. <laughs> <laughs> Little did they know your dad was a judge and you were a rancher's son. I mean, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that Looks can be deceiving. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Texas is an interesting place. It's, it, uh, there's, it's full of contradictions, as, as are most places, of course. But, uh, you know, the rest of the country would probably think about Texas as this kind of conservative... Uh, deep 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 red state which is of course true today but texas happens to be home to one of the most if not the most uh public beach laws uh in the country in the united states and uh, it's called the open beaches act and uh ellis you you've got some you've got some history here with this what was it 1959 59 yes uh The Open Beaches Act uh, is the law that uh, guarantees that everyone has a right to use the entire beach from, in my words, the water to the weeds, the line of vegetation. It's it's a public beach easement. And uh, where the Open Beaches Act came from is uh, State Representative Bob Eckhart. In 1958, he was a fisherman. He loved to fish, and he was driving down the West Galveston Beach because at that time there was no road that went the entire 18 miles to the west end. He was headed to one of his favorite uh, fishing spots at San Luis Pass. 
when he encountered a barbed wire fence that went across the island and out into the water. And he said, they can't do this. This is a public beach. So he was dry, he was trying to go up and down the beach, right? As like like using it like a road, basically it like a road, which yeah. is what it was then. Yeah, and Absolutely. a lot of surf fishermen do. You got to move and up and down the beach to find the fish. Uh, that yeah. that section of the beach is is often quoted as one of the places where stagecoaches and the mail was delivered along that part of the coast. Right. But uh, he, he he thought that you know this is this is a public beach. They can't do that. And when he got back, he, he did some research and found that there was no part of the state law that claimed it was a public beach and for public access and so in 1959 the legislature was in session again and and as an aside there in texas our legislature meet under our constitution meets once every other year for 140 days and they go through uh, have to consider about five or six thousand bills it's it's a real rodeo there yeah but uh bob went back to the uh to the legislature and he filed a bill, which became the Open Beaches Act. And as most legislative sessions are, they're very raucous and things don't get done. Of the 5,000 bills, maybe 100 or 300 pass. And mm-hmm. the session ended before that bill came up. Yeah. And so he went to the Price Daniel, who was also from my hometown, Liberty, and asked for a special session. The, the governor. The Constitution allows the governor to call special sessions whenever necessary. Usually they're not necessary, but in this case, the governor said, yeah, well, this beach is public. We need to do something about it. Right. Now, I just let me, let me just interject here for all those surfers out in California and people who love their shorelines in Florida. Hawaii. In Hawaii. Think about this for a minute. The governor of the state of Texas called a special, this is after the 140-day adjournment of the Texas legislature, called a special session for the sole purpose of passing the Open Beaches Act and guaranteeing the citizens in Texas the right to get to the shoreline. Now, I got to tell you, times have changed. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was 1959. Right. It is 2019. How many years is that? Is that 60 or? That's 40 plus. Yeah, 60. 60 years have passed. And boy, are we fortunate that we we got that done back then. It's been a gift. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the things about that is uh, I don't know if the legislature was inspired or just plain lucky, but the Open Beaches Act is more relevant today than it was when it was written. Why is that, Ellis? Why does the Open Beaches Act still carry so much power or needs to be uh, protected in Texas? Uh, because it's a public beach. It's our beach. There are 24 million Texans at this point, and only about 2,000 of those own front row beach houses. Really? Without the Open Beaches Act, the uh, people who own the front row could claim that the beach was their private beach and keep you off. And that's one of the things of the OBA. It says that it is illegal for someone to say, this is a private beach. Can't even say it. You you also can't post a sign. People Mm -hmm. say it all the time, post signs. And when I'm around, things change. (laughs) Well, you know, I think it's important to kind of put out one difference between how it works in Florida, like over in Destin right now and in uh, Fort Walton, Walton County. Uh, if you're, you can walk on the beach in Florida, but you have to be below the mean waterline. You got to be on the wet beach down at the edge and you can traverse up and down the beach as long as you're in the water, basically. Uh, 
Right. And if you're not, if you're up on the dry beach, if you take your towel up and you lay it down and you take out a, you know, a, a blanket and you sit down, you put up an umbrella, they will call the sheriff. They actually call the police. The security guard that they hire will come out and tell you to leave. If you don't, they will call the police, and they will be there quicker than if someone said there's a robbery at the bank. Yeah, that's it. And so when you say the Texas Open Beaches Act, would you say sea to the weeds? What was the phrase? The, the water to the weeds. The water to the water weeds. To the weeds. We weeds. can go all the way up to the line of vegetation, which is the beginning of the dune system. And what the Texas Open Beaches Act protects is that dry beach easement where people recreate and play and throw a Frisbee and build a castle with their kids uh, that's right and and uh, people come along all the time and want to get rid of that provision and i stand up at meetings and say well a woman takes her children with the ice chest on wheels and pulls it down to the beach and they're there for a few hours the tide comes in they try and walk back up the beach and find that there is no beach they can't get back and yeah. the security guard saying get back in the water drag your kids and everything through the water to get to your actual uh, barbaric point absolutely barbaric <laughs> we don't do that in texas we don't we're ahead of the curve we're ahead <laughs> of the curve i mean you know it's it's i think one of the fascinating things about this stretch of shoreline here is that uh from uh the water to the line of vegetation which as peter just mentioned is the start of the dune system uh you can recreate that is your space every single uh resident of texas or from anywhere in the world you can go there and recreate on that beach in fact it is parts of the texas coast are quite international and are uh highly visited by uh people from mexico and from all over the place so this goodness nick meyer our one of our favorite texas fishermen uh out of corpus is a he's now an american citizen he he moved from england to to texas and and fell in love with he's now a citizen but i mean it is this is an attraction that draws people from to texas from all over the world and the open beaches act has served as a uh a protector a A cornerstone a cornerstone of this asset and it is the subject of much discussion and uh, that kind of brings us to our next topic, Ellis. Uh, we are here in yet another legislative session in 2019, 60 years after the uh, enshrinement in law of the Open Beaches Act. And you are here working with the uh, Upper Coast uh, chapter of the Surfrider Foundation here in Texas. What are you working on uh, with the legislative? How are you... How are you planning on uh, advancing the surf rider cause this session? Well, uh, this is my 11th session as a volunteer lobbyist in Austin. And uh, usually we are just running a, a defensive uh, position because bills are filed by people who want to build something on the coast or do something on the coast that is prohibited by the Open Beaches Act. And so we show up and point out that uh, the, the fallacy of this. Uh, a, a lot of, well, I, let me go back to the first. Yeah. In 1999, that was our first legislative session. And there were a number of bills that uh, would have weakened the Open Beaches Act. And so I show up here. I've got photographs of the beach. 
I also have documents. I also have the uh, current law and just point out that this is what the law is. And the reason it's there is because millions of people want to use our beach. And this guy wants to create a private beach because when he built his, his uh, last subdivision, coastal subdivision in California or Florida or Rhode Island, he could have a private beach. Right. And so we, we work to, uh, well, head all of those off. And, I, and I'm, I'm happy to say that uh, in 11 sessions, or 10 sessions, we hadn't started this one good yet, but in 10 sessions, we were able to kill every single bad bill, one that would have inhibited public beach access. We'd either kill them outright. Some of them are so bad they just die of their own weight. But uh, some need a little bit of help. Mm-hmm. And we go in and, and uh, explain to the legislators exactly what's going on and why this needs to be done and in in most cases uh it it, it's it's fairly simple but there's some uh some bills that uh have a lot more money behind them and they're paying lobbyists quite a bit of money just to go in and come up against us and when i go in and speak uh, i i show up in a pinstripe suit and spit shine shoes and a halliburton briefcase and invariably at the at a committee hearing someone from the ds will say uh you're an attorney, aren't you? I go, no, I'm a surfer. <laughs> well, you're an engineer. Yeah. No, I'm a surfer. I have dozens of engineers, coastal experts, and attorneys that vet everything that comes out of my mouth before I say it. So, yeah. I mean, and that's the thing. They underestimate us. They think we're just a bunch of surfers, a bunch of Spicolis or the yeah. the chicken in uh, Surf's Up. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, which yeah, absolutely. a lot of them are. Yeah. But... Uh, and it's okay to be like that every, you know, once in a while. But I'll tell you what, when the surfers come to lobby, they come prepared. Oh, yeah. And uh, when I was living in D.C., I got invited to a lobby day uh, in Congress with the surf rider outfit out there. And we wore uh, on top, you know, jacket, tie, white shirt, whole nine yards. But board shorts on the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it must it. have been the summertime. <laughs> it was. De- it definitely was. You know, and, and that's it. You've got to go in and fight the battle on their ground, on their turf. So suit up like they do. And I, I know. I mean, that gets you a lot more respect. They uh, they worry when they see a guy in a pinstripe suit and a briefcase. Well, yeah. of course. And I'll tell you, it's a it's a battle of enormous uh, import because we're talking about what I think is the purest conflict between public rights and private interests that you can find legally in America, which is the land-water interface. And uh, it is valuable. There are millions and millions of people who go to the Texas coast, and this particular geographic space is worth a bunch of money. And it is constantly being examined by people looking to uh, financially benefit from the erosion of the public's right to the shoreline. And uh, I don't think that force uh, for the private interest is ever going. And I'm a believer in private property rights. I just think the public in this particular space is the primary right of interest. And those uh, private guys are going to keep trying to make money off of sequestering and keeping us all off the shoreline if they can. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, let's, some of the things that happen is, is, you know, developer comes in and he goes to the county commissioners or the city council and says, I'm going to buy 800 acres out here. I'm going to put in. 2,000 houses going to increase your tax base, and the local officials say, what do you need? And they sell them. And uh, what they need is something like they had in California or Florida where they could have a private beach. That's illegal in Texas. They think they can get a waiver. I've heard that more times. And then we just go in and point out that, no, there's good reasons for this. There's sound legal and scientific reasons why you can't do this. 
subdivisions uh, in, in Texas on the coast, uh, they do not usually put in enough parking to say they t say the subdivision has a half a mile of a beachfront. Right. Uh, that would require uh, quite a number of, of public parking spaces under the Open Beaches Act can, in that subdivision. I'll do the math for you. Keep going. Okay. And so uh, we ha we go in and, and we explain that you know you you need to have parking areas here, and they go, well, I can't make any money if I got to put in a parking area. Well then under your due diligence you would figure out that you can't build that here you know right. and we talk about uh having new construction setbacks two-thirds of the texas coast is eroding at two to ten or more feet a year it's going to continue to do so until the next ice age and so when mm -hmm. they when they come in if they don't put parking spaces in and the beach goes away there is no public beach at all it's only the people who own the beachfront in the first couple of rows yeah it can be a guest to so, go on that beach. Quick primer on the law. Uh, it is accessible and compliant with the Open Beaches Act to allow the public to drive up and down the shoreline in Texas, and that is full public access. If you have a half-mile uh, slice of the Texas coast and you're going to put houses on there, you can say to the state, you know what, we don't want the cars there because the kids go out and play on the beach, and you can take the cars off the beach, but you have to provide parking on the immediate upland adjacent to the beach one space for every 15 feet of beach that is close to cars and on a half a mile of beach that means that's 175 174 public parking spaces that have to be built into your subdivision and having worked with developers and helped them comply with the open beaches i, I can tell you that's not the thing they want to do but they have to because the public interest demands it oh and and what happens is they put in roads that are too narrow for public parking. Right. Right. They don't put curbs on a lot of these. And me, I'm a kind of a nice guy. When I pull into a subdivision and the road is very narrow, I really don't want to pull halfway out or completely out on their nice manicured St. Augustine lawn, even right. though that is part of the road easement for the city. Correct. Huh? Yeah, yeah okay. I, I think yeah. that, that, you know, the Open Beaches Act and what happens in the legislature and why it's important, Ellis, that, that you've shown up for 22 years, because as Tyler said, the legislature meets every other year. This is your 11th session. They just started here in January. They'll be out of here in, what, May 15th? Sign uh, die? Yeah, I think it's the first part of June. First part yeah. of June yeah. uh, when they roll out of town. And you have to be here every session to keep to bird dog this thing and keep an eye on the open beaches act and explain it to the let i mean y'all it's funny because uh uh ellis showed up with his briefcase and he does have a halliburton briefcase which is one of those aluminum ones where you, can, you know windproof waterproof because you know you're out in the field when you work for halliburton mm -hmm. with a with a got sand sticker on the side of it but he opens it up and he's got aerial photographs of all the beaches in texas because this is what you do for a living and, and that's it. I've, some of the photographs that I've got here on the top uh, are actually taken after Hurricane Ike and before and after Hurricane Ike that badly damaged the North Texas coast in Houston. It wiped out thousands and thousands of houses along the coast and as far inland as 30 miles. But uh, one of the things I pulled this out a number of times today was as I was making our, my rounds through the legislature and pointed out that you, do you see these blue lines here on this map? Those are the lot boundary lines, and they extend out into the Gulf of Mexico. 
if you were going to buy a beachfront house and I pulled this out and said, look, this guy bought this lot and more than half of it is now in the Gulf of Mexico, perhaps you would think that this is a risky investment and I should buy further back, which leads to another thing. Yeah. Years ago, when I was, when I was uh, researching all of this, I uh, decided to do a survey and I called coastal banks from Beaumont to Brownsville and said, I'm thinking about buying a beach house and I want to know about financing on it. And, and the question is, well, where do you want it? And I said, I found a perfect spot on the front row. It's a great house. And every single loan officer that I spoke to said, uh, we don't make loans on front row properties. You should buy something further back. Right. But people are buying front row properties every day. Absolutely. How are they doing that? Either it's cash and they don't care or they go to a mortgage broker or an inland bank that does not understand. The other thing that, that because two thirds of the Texas coast is eroding and there are erosion hotspots on most of the populated areas, people built too close to an eroding shore. They've already lost part of their lot. The first row of houses on the North coast has been wiped out in the last 30 years. But right. I, you know, I also point out that, you know, you can buy life insurance and fire insurance and theft insurance and medical insurance, but you can't buy erosion insurance. Hmm. So I can't get a loan. I can't get insurance. That's your sign, buddy. Yeah, it's but risky. We, you know, P.T. Barnum was right. There's a sucker barn every day. Mm-hmm. And some of them have plenty of money they want to spend on a nice beach house. Well, and the the reality is, is that... Uh, People are making money on the American shoreline every single day, and they're doing it by uh, in all sorts of ways. But developing the shoreline, running Airbnbs out of it, uh, building big towers with lots of units in it, people are finding ways to make money. But what's interesting here is as the shoreline moves, this most dynamic uh, geologic feature of the planet, as it moves around... Uh, the Open Beaches Act protects it. Doesn't matter if you're if the beach moves into your place, uh, it's public. And this has come to the fore over the pa- over the 60 years of the Texas Open Beaches Act. There have been a number of times where houses are, you know, a major hurricane will happen, and all of a sudden the beach has moved a couple hundred yards in one direction or the other. And now a, a home is is on the beach. What does Surfrider? What what is your job with Surfrider to go in and follow that up and make sure that the public's uh, right to beach access there is protected? You've got a house sitting in the middle of the beach. Well, uh, you, you usually I usually go to the city council or the county commissioners, and that usually doesn't work. Yeah. So then I go to the general land office because the Open Beaches Act is the keystone to public public rights to access. Right. I mean. A lot of times the local politicians will go and do whatever. A There's a contentious wants. relationship there, I and, think, between the state and local officials over the Open Beaches Act. Uh, oh, yeah. Local, I mean, a local wants uh, another 2,000 homes built that are in the half a million to $5 million yeah, range. And, the tax base. And, but uh, the land office back here in Austin, they're sitting back and looking at it and, and trying to have the long term view. I say that. Generally, the land office does that. There, are, it's it's uh, our leaders are political, and uh, there's a lot of pressure here. So we uh, that's one. Are of the you things. referring to the land commissioner, land, the elected guy? You're right. And and there there are things that uh, when I when I first conceived the idea of getting 
surf rider chapters in texas i I looked at the erosion development all this stuff and i said oh we can fix this in three years (laughs) uh here we are 20 years later right there is a new threat every time the legislature's in session it's it's we just have to stay on top of it well i want to throw some an observation in here ellis when you were talking about pt barnum quote that you know if you talk to local lenders, uh, it's tough to get a loan for beachfront property. But if you find your way to people who don't think about that issue, it's a little bit easier. Here's the other consideration I think we overlook when we talk about development on the American shoreline. And it's partially an explanation of why this continues to happen, even though we know over and over that these areas are highly vulnerable. They should not be built. It's going to cost all of the taxpayers millions, hundreds of millions of dollars over the course of, you know, like 30 or 40 years to protect these shorelines. The, 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 here's what's going on, I think. There is a difference in the time frame of reference. In other words, the buyers of the property are thinking about 10 maybe 20 years your reti- lifetime probably they're like well if you're 60 and you're retiring on the texas coast you're like well gee whiz i'm gonna buy this house i need it for 10 years and whatever the hell is going on with the shoreline i'm good for 10 and if it happens i don't you know the and but the the science and what you're talking about in policy is a geologic time frame it is that the long-term average erosion rates on the texas shoreline uh and it's not that long term i mean you and i both know when the photographs that you have of lot lines out in the Gulf of Mexico, I have the same stack for South Padre Island and also used it to demonstrate the, the dynamic you know, movement of the shoreline. But it's that scientists think of long-term erosion, buyers think of 10-year timeframes, and that's where I think the conflict starts. And, and uh, if I might just pile onto this, when Babe Schwartz and Bob Eckhart and these kind of grandfathers of the Texas Open Beaches Act created the Open Beaches Act, they were thinking about generations of Texans. So time eternal. This is forever and all time a place for the public. And that's why I think your work with the Surfrider and what Surfrider does, not only in Texas, but all over the American shoreline, is advocate for uh, these these rights and privileges and and modes of access and enjoying the shoreline that are are we're we're fortunate to have but we have to fight to keep to, to retain oh yeah I mean I've, I've I even had a politician talk about timeline I was talking about that the geologists the, the planners they're going looking out 50 years and his response to me well maybe that's too long <laughs> right and and I, this is a, a I made this pitch 10 times this morning in the Capitol building uh-huh. that uh, if you're what I say after I show them the maps and, and the property lines, I've had I've had a number of front row property owners say, if my corner markers are 40 feet out in the water, that's still my property. Well, it ain't. No. It's called Texas submerged land. Right. And and what I've said, what, what I've said today was uh, that if you're thinking about what I suggest, if you're thinking about buying a beach house. You got to remember one thing. The water will be rising until the next ice age. So what you do is you go pick out a spot, wait about a thousand years to make sure it's an ice age, (laughs) go ahead and buy it. And in 
10 or 15,000 years, you'll have a long, skinny ranch with beachfront property. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's the reality, folks. But well, we've got the arguments are all this, I want a beach house. Well, right. that's the time frame that you're talking about. And, and I think it, when you talk to the elected officials and they think maybe 50 years is too long, the time frame of reference for an elected official is two to four years, <laughs> usually. And again, so the parties to the discussion, the buyers, the scientists, and the elected officials are all operating on different frames of reference in time. And I think, I just think if you, uh, you know, it helps figure out how to talk about this because that's part of the inherent problem in the dialogue on public rights. And, uh, you know, I, I think we're, we're talking about the Open Beaches Act, but isn't it interesting that the conversation fundamentally gets driven into development because this is what causes the risk to the public right of access and use of the beach is the fact that there are upland owners who who want exclusive rights to the space and that's where the conflict arises it's through the development process really right and developers you know they if they're successful if they can buy 800 acres of beachfront property they got some money they've been successful somewhere else and so they have a cookie cutter deal oh yeah and they don't like it when people say oh no you've got to add parking spaces or or one of my things is uh, we need to the construction setback needs to be moved further inland to so right. that the dunes can migrate in right and right. when a developer hears that they say well I can't sell the front row I say yeah you can it's just gonna be a little bit further from the water right and, On they, the- say, and they say I I can't make as much money then I said well you're going to make whatever the market allows, yeah. whatever that is. And if you don't think you can make enough money on it, go somewhere else. Yeah. But they don't. They're hard-headed. They know how to do this. Well, you, you're just a Texas surfer. You can't tell me how to do this. However, I have the Internet. Yeah. <laughs> well, one thing's for sure, never <laughs> underestimate the uh, the gall of a surfer. If you've ever seen these guys plummet down a 100-foot wave, uh there is uh, some cajones involved in all that. But let's talk about one such case. Um, there's the Severance v. Patterson case uh, that has been imp- an important feature on the discussion of the Open Beaches Act in Texas for some time. Uh, going back to uh, Patterson is the former uh, land commissioner and was also on uh, the next world podcast on ASPN. So if you want to get familiarize yourself with old Jerry Patterson, you can listen to that old show. Uh, but t- tell me a little bit about that case and, and what's at stake there. Well, uh, the, the severance versus Patterson lawsuit was filed. I don't know, 2006 or that yeah, seems about right. Something like, it uh, bounced it's... around for a while and, until it got to the Texas Supreme Court. Yeah, uh, Miss Severance was a California attorney, and she bought four or five properties on West End of Galveston. Some were beachfront, some were vacant lots, but some had houses. And not long after she bought it, a uh, tropical storm came in and moved the line of vegetation inland of her house, one of her houses. And so that triggers a letter from the Texas land office that says your house is now on the public beach easement. You have to remove it at your own cost, or you may be, you may have to remove it Mm -hmm. at your own cost. And people say, well, why? What's, what's the deal there? I didn't do anything wrong. Well, I go back to the, you bought a house on an eroding shoreline. Mm -hmm. You took, made a risky venture. You couldn't get a loan and you couldn't get insurance and you did it anyway. What was severance uh, it went through the courts. Uh, actually, it went it, it went through the 
lower courts and went to the Supreme Court and then went back to the lower courts. Right. And then came back to the Supreme Court. Yep. And uh, we have nine justices on the Texas Supreme Court, and they are all elected. Remember that, folks. One of the few states with still an elected judiciary in the state of Texas and at, this, at uh, this level. It, it is my opinion that they just hate public beaches. I, I went to the uh, at the here. Um, the last hearing at the at the the uh, Supreme Court. You went to the you went to the Severance B, v. Patterson Supreme Court uh, argument. Yes, and a, a, as a matter of fact, uh, Surfrider Foundation is a party to that suit. We okay. we were given uh, standing. Standing. You were yes. interveners in the case. Oops, not my my non lawyer. That's okay. Just showed, <laughs> but uh, and so anyway, it was, it was argued there, and I walked out into the hall after it was over, and a radio guy came up stuck a microphone in my face and and said uh what do you think the the, uh, supreme court's going to do and i said well i have no idea how they're going to uh, rule but i can guarantee you one thing they won't announce their ruling until after the next general election since three of them are up for election now and sure enough five days after the election out came the pronouncement that the open texas open beaches act does not apply to West Galveston Island. Right. Huh. And, you know, for the folks out there and a little bit on the Open Beaches Act, this going up to the line of vegetation, the primer, which is like the public beach easement is from the water up to the line of vegetation. When the shoreline erodes and the vegetation moves landward, as it did in, in Carol Severance's case, uh, they are now in the easement of the public, and you can't have a structure within the easement. That's kind of what the court was facing and what they decided was we've changed it this is judicial activism we are not going to let the easement roll back what's called a rolling easement here in texas and other states are very uh, envious of the fact that we do have an adjusting easement but that's what they said nope the easement doesn't roll back right is that kind of what the deal was yes yes And, and that's one of the things that uh i go back to the 1959 whether they were inspired or lucky the fact right. is the beach is wherever it is. It's going to move one way or the other, and no matter how big a head these people have here in Austin, they can't legislate that. The beach mm-hmm. is where it is. So the Open Beaches Act was written perfectly. The line of vegetation to the water is a public beach easement, wherever it is. Yeah. Well, I always told them when people talk about takings is I do get the fact that your property has been taken, but you need to sue God. Because Absolutely. that's the party who did it, yep. and not the state of Texas. I mean, the the public right. Now, here's the other thing interesting, and I don't know if this is true, Ellis, about the Severance case, but uh, what I've heard is that this was a test case, legal test case, by the Pacific uh, Legal Foundation out of uh, California. Southern California. Southern California. And they knew they wanted to attack this particular provision. Carol actually bought her property with the help not with the help of the lawyers i'm not saying financially but but they knew that they were doing this and that they were going to bring this lawsuit in by god they did it one of my is that true yes and and that's that's my opinion too because she bought five properties down there i don't think anybody else has bought five properties down there in the last few years but one of the the things about this lawsuit is uh in her deposition she never came to texas for any of the hearings but in in uh, her deposition she stated uh that uh i am both an a, a licensed attorney and realtor in the state of california 
Hmm. And nowhere in any document I signed in my Texas purchase did it say I would not be reimbursed for my purchase. What? Really? She got a license and she doesn't know that? Well, the other interesting thing, the Pacific, and I would love to have the Pacific Legal Foundation on the American Shoreline podcast because I'm not. We're not sitting here arguing that private property doesn't matter, and we and we all understand the constitutional protections both at the state level and at the federal level. This stuff matters, but in the shoreline space, it's all about the balance of the interests. And what and and look in Texas, we not only have the Open Beaches Act. But by referendum, we amended the state constitution to to uh, put the Open Beaches Act and the right of the public to be on the shoreline in the damn state constitution. That's true, isn't it? And that happened before severance case got reached the Supreme Court. Right. Yeah. I, I have a by God right constitutional right yeah. to use the beach. I can drive my truck on most of them. I can drink my can't drink a long neck because glass bottles are prohibited. I, I can drink <laughs> and, a can and generally a bad idea. Uh, we recommend not no glass on the beach. <laughs> That's right. I, I got my or gun. by the pool. Or I by got, the pool. Yeah, I got my gun in the gun rack. Yeah, you know, and driving down the beach. Now I don't have to drive on every inch of the beach. Right. I don't mind it, and I, I go to meetings up and down the coast where the city is trying, saying, "Hey, look, we're going to restrict public access to this beach. Make it a pedestrian and, and beach, they, and make it a pedestrian beach." And, mm-hmm. and I get phone calls. What do you think about that? As long as you, as far as I'm concerned, as long as you've got public parking spaces yep. in the area as required by law, yep. I'm okay with Me it. Me too. But once again, when you're dealing with a government, when they write a law with, that has the standards in it. What are those standards? Well, usually they are the minimum standards. And people come in, the developers come in and say, I'm building a world-class development here. And my response is, why not have world-class public access? Right. I mean, and I've worked with developers to help permitted projects on the Texas coast where we've taken a driving beach to a pedestrian beach, and I can advise them and help them and comply with the law if they are willing to do it. And I've actually found a bunch of people I worked with who were able to listen. Their inclination at the beginning, if I can generalize, is we don't want the trash and the noise and all of the interruption and it depresses property values and all of this stuff. But you design great beachfront parks, you incorporate them into the uh, subdivision, you provide parking. Uh, people don't want to drive and park next to your house. They really want a nice place where they got a bathroom and a, maybe a playground and a way to get down to the water. And damn it, these things are compatible. And uh, that's what I think the Open Beaches Act requires. And it's and it's worked for Texas. It's the foundation of our coastal economy, really. I mean, I don't know, maybe that's too high. But no, I think it is. The foundation of the coastal economy, surely in some towns. You know, one of the things that happens when... Uh, we get involved with a, a battle with developers when we point out some of the problems they go to the media they spend money to get advertising time on radio tv and print media saying that surf riders against development we're not against development we're against bad ideas and we like to go point those out and explain that there are alternatives to this if you just change this here or this there add a park add some parking spaces make it easier for the people to get there you're good to go, but most of them are just so hard-headed, they don't want to change anything, and those have to go down the drain. Well, there's an education that uh, process that happens, and uh, when, in my experience with developers, especially if they're inland developers, and Centex, I think you, you and I were talking about, uh, I, I tell them, first of all, it's not 
Dallas. So you don't get to grid it out the same way you would in the middle of the upland part of the state. We're down here on a narrow stretch. It moves around. you got to think a little differently. I mean, that education process is something you spend a lot of time on in the legislature and with the developers. Yeah, you know, we, we point out that the coast is moving. It's going to continue to move. And, and what you really need to do, what uh, we suggest is that uh, you create, instead of building a bunch of houses on the front row 25 feet from the nearly non-existent dunes on the North Texas coast, well, let me point out that one thing, Nueces County in the, in the coastal bend has some of the biggest dunes in the state. They're 15, 18 feet high, yep. three or 400 feet wide in some places, a dune field. They came up with their new construction setback is... 300 feet from the inland toe of the massive dunes that protect them from storm surges yeah galveston island you can build 75 feet from the non-existent four foot high dunes right yeah that nueces county there you know again you know i'm just going to argue that there are some progressive uh, innovative thinkers on the texas coast and that 300 foot setback in nueces county is a, an incredibly good policy and it's smart it's smart and <clears throat> clearly up and down the texas coast the Surfrider foundation is uh advocating for public access the the open beaches act these are incredibly important legal features uh on the texas coast now ellis we've got to we've got to talk about another major issue that i'm sure is being chatted about in the halls of the legislature uh this session and that is the coastal spine uh this is boy you just this is a massive project billions of dollars as uh as Tompkins said uh it's biblical in proportions it's absolutely massive it would transform the Galveston Bay uh system what is Surfrider doing on that issue and are you uh talking about the spine in uh, this session. Well, tell uh, us what the spine is and then do that. Uh, the, the coastal spine was uh, developed by a professor at uh, A&M Galveston after tropical, uh, Hurricane Ike decimated the North Texas coast. And uh, what he's proposing is a levee system that extends from the little small town of High Island on the, in Chambers County and moves, goes west to Galveston Island. And it would be 17 to 21 feet tall. Then there would be massive gates across the ship channel that goes into the port of Houston where most of the petroleum products in the country are, are refined. Uh-huh. So let's put some distances on this thing. So from High Island down to the Galveston ship channel, the entrance to the port of Houston is about, what, 10 miles No, more? no, it's about 30 miles. 30-mile-long 30 levee on the Barrier Island beach to protect the island or whatever from surge. And then gates across the Galveston Ship Channel entrance, which is, I think, if I remember, about two miles wide. Correct. It's it's about two miles wide. That uh, one system of gates. There's there's something similar to this in the Netherlands, in Rotterdam, and and, and uh, I think, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And it would be uh, a huge swing gate. The only time it would close would be once a year for to ensure that it worked, or if a storm is coming to keep the storm surge from going up the ship channel and all the way into Houston. Right. And and that's a pretty it, good idea. Well, and, and let's just pause and, and, and contemplate what it be to have a door that can open and close across a tidally influenced bay system that is two 
miles wide. The engineering feat of this is monumental. I think that's why. Yes, what, biblical is, is actually a good bi- word. Biblical is a good word. That is a, a that's, you know, the, wall, the Great Wall of China kind of stuff. And then it continues all the way down to San Luis Pass, which is, what, another 30 miles of levee it, systems it, along the beach? It, it, w- it would tie into the Galveston Seawall. And one thing that the, right. most people do not know is Galveston Seawall was built after the 1900 storm uh, that wiped out the island, killed about 6,000 people. It was the most deaths in any storm in the U.S. history. Still is. And, and the thing of it is that uh, because of subsidence, Portions of that uh, seawall, instead of being 17 feet, are down around 15 feet. And at a meeting last week, someone said 12 feet. Really? I had not heard that. That was the first time I'd heard the 12, but it was someone who should know. Okay. And so what they're going to do is is raise that or put put some more concrete on the top of it in whatever places. And then at the west end of the seawall, they're going to build an 18-mile levee again all the way to San Luis Pass. Now, there may or may not be some gates there. Right. But which, you know, I've dealt with water all my life, and I realize that if you put a line of levee in one place and it just ends for no reason, water's going to race around it anyway. Right. Coming around the end. And, uh, you know, so when you think about the the cost of the estimates on this thing vary widely. It's in the process now of, of federal decision making. The environmental impact station slash feasibility study, which is itself a kind of a weird NEPA document, is out for public comment right now. Cost estimates I've heard as high as $30 billion investment. Uh, the Texas Land Commissioner, George P. Bush, this is Jeb Bush's son, is is spoken kind of generally in favor. The project is in the hands of the Corps of Engineers. And uh, it's a big, this is a this is the single largest infrastructure project. I think that is ever, aside from maybe some port investments, but in terms of uh, shore protection is the biggest thing ever happened in Texas. Is that right? Oh, oh yeah. And and the, the levy itself, also there was, it, it started out when it was first proposed, it was going to cost $5 billion. Okay. I looked at the proposal and wondered why it didn't include the money it would take to purchase 80 miles of beachfront property to put a levy on it. Right. The eminent domain, the lawsuits that oh, would yeah. come from this. I mean, oh, the, yeah. the thing about it is, is there are people who want it. And there are other people who are against it, and that's next-door neighbors. It's kind of like the Civil War right now. Wow. Uh, you've got some people that uh, want it built in front of them. Some people want it built in back of them. Some people who don't want it at all. And now the cost estimate is $31 billion. I don't know. When's the last time you heard a cost estimate for a government project that was higher than the actual cost? <laughs> right. I- I'm thinking we started at 5 We're up to 31 now, but we still haven't done any lawsuits or eminent domain right and And in the mid you know and and look i understand and i think we should all understand the value of the city of houston and the petrochemical industry 40 what is i forget the percentage of uh of petrochemical products that are produced in the houston region it's massive uh this is incredibly valuable and the risk is real in the american shoreline these storm surges and intensities of storms that are getting more frequent and more uh intense uh, present real problems and so i for the folks who work their butt off to figure out the coastal spine or the mid-bay option and all of these things that they're trying to work through i, I get why they're trying to do it but i think the thing tyler was pointing out is 
this project is going to replumb Galveston Bay in ways that we don't even fully understand. And it's certainly going to change the look and feel of the coast. Um, and it's a massive. And then you guys are jumping in as Surfrider along with lots of other organizations to talk about this damn thing. Yeah, public comment period ends February 9th. We are working on our comment right now. They need to extend that comment period six months. I, there's no way you can do that. This is way too inadequate, well, in my it, opinion. Well, that's, it's already, well, that's one of the things. There were uh, so many people have come out against this, the, uh, the peninsula of Bolivar. I was at a meeting the other day, and people were so upset. They were yelling at the, the Corps commander, calling him a liar. You people aren't working to help us. You're not paying any attention to us. This, we don't want it here that's it hurricane ike wiped us out we built we rebuilt we're building our the elevation of our houses is higher now we should be above any storm surge yeah the base flood elevation it's it's gonna it's gonna flood it's gonna go under our houses now rather than through them Mm. Uh, another thing is you know anybody out there like to eat fish well galveston bay is the nursery you put these gates across there you're going to interrupt the flow in some way. You're going to hinder the flow for sure. Yeah. Are those little change bitty, the salinity? All those little bitty larvae that were yeah. ha, that were laid out in the in the Gulf of Mexico, they follow. They f- make it into the bay by the tides and the wind. Yeah. Then and they, the barrier is not. You know, the gate isn't two miles wide. There's going to be barriers, so it is going to change the tidal prism and the currents and and the. And, and then there's a gate cyst part of this. Design. I mean, the design has not been finished, but this is what the pictures look like. Yeah, well, and, and not only that, the yeah, the gates would just be the width of the Galveston ship channel at right. that point. And they're widening the ship channel and deepening it right now for the Panamax ships, the yep. much larger ships. that And uh, they're widening places in the ship channel for two-way traffic. Because when these great, great big ships start coming through the new Panama Canal, yeah, they won't be able to pass each other and going oh, okay. up the ship channel is that right i didn't know that yeah, so they're going to widen the houston ship channel uh, entrance i think they're going to 55 feet is that right i think so and it's with an over dredge of maybe 58 well, i forget well and there's also talk of even 75 feet wow you know i, I can't imagine a that'll ship load change. of that'll... nike shoes turning over out there you right. know it's just uh yeah it's a big deal this is a massive project and uh I do think, and I was talking to, when we talked to the guy from the Galveston Bay Foundation, right. Scott. Yeah, Scott Jones. Scott Jones. Um, you know, he, he was pointing out that if you do this, we're going to change the entire bay system. That means the oyster fishery is going to change, the trout, everything is going to be affected because it's all salinity sensitive and it's it, the tidal prism and how the water moves in and out of the bay is tied to all of these critters. And we're about to dock if we do this we're about to doctor that and and i don't think we are capable of fully understanding what we're about to do but i can't imagine that it is an improvement i'll tell you that i'm very i think it's not going to get better when you when we intervene in nature on this scale i don't think it typically goes well no and and another facet of this is uh you know it's to protect the port what most people don't know is for 15 or 20 years ports around the world have been raising their levees around them. They've been mm. doing it themselves. The refineries on the, along the ship channel in, in Houston and, and down in Freeport, the Dow Chemical Refinery down there at, at, at Freeport, the largest Dow plant in the world, they've been strengthening and raising their levees for a number of years. It protects them. Well, you know, this is kind of like, to, to me, part of this is kind of like, let's 
put together a new tax system so that we can build a 300 or 500 million dollar baseball stadium right well, you know the port should be able to protect itself they're the one we don't need to raise taxes for the port to protect itself they can spend the money that they need to and just pass the cost through they'll still make a profit sure i'm a little bit of a skeptic but i i gotta tell you that the i don't feel like the information that is been made available is sufficiently clear as to how this thing is all going to unfold. Yeah. Well, it's definitely something that we've got to keep our eye on because it's unfolding before our eyes. And, uh, you know, as we, uh, follow it, I think that one story continues to emerge and that is, uh, it would be really easy here given the scope of this project to find ourselves in a situation where, we are managing the unforeseen consequences of this. And uh, this is a Bay system that has already dealt with uh, a lot. It has been decimated by overfishing. It has been uh, hurt by offflows of of, uh, pollutants and and all sorts of stuff. So, uh, and there's there's a strong advocacy community. Surfrider is part of it that uh, wants to make sure that the bay is protected and respected. Yeah, uh, you know, there, there's a, a couple of things ab- about this. Uh, one of the things that is not been a question that has not been answered is after this thirty-one billion dollar project has been constructed, there's a maintenance for this that could right. be hundreds of millions of dollars a year. If it's on an eroding shore and there is no beach out there, state law, the Open Beaches Act, our Constitution says that's a pub. There's supposed to be a public beach. They're going to have to put in millions of cubic yards of sand to renourish the beaches forever. And the other thing is, my preferred solution on this would be to create in any new development or after a storm comes through, you can have some buyouts for the front row areas so that people wouldn't build there again, to create a natural buffer zone of dunes and vegetation between the Gulf of Mexico and the first row of beaches. That should be based on the annual rate of erosion. If it's 10 feet a year, 600 feet, something Bake like it that. In. And and that way, what you've got, it, and, and the developer could actually deed that property to the state or right. the state could buy it, and it would be sacrificial. A storm comes in, instead of taking out the first row of houses, it takes out all the dunes and vegetation. Which we can put back. And then we put it back. And, and we nobody just gets keep killed except that. the rattlesnakes and the beach mouths. And, and then I don't have to pick up broken glass and nails from a house. Do you know, have, any, right. have any idea how many nails are in a beach house? <laughs> Me neither. But there's a whole bunch of them because I've been picking them up for 20 years. And septic years. systems which end up on the glass. beach in Texas. Yeah. And, you know, here's one of my questions about this, and I know we could go on for days on this topic, but. One of the questions I have is Hurricane Harvey hit Houston in 2017. Uh, This is the storm that the 55 inches of rain that absolutely flooded the city. So the storm surge flood risk is, I mean, the the flood risk is not simply storm surge, although that is a big deal. When you put this gate in place and you close off the base system and the hurricane comes over the top of it as it will and drops massive amounts of rain onto the near shore coastal environment like it did in harvey and all of that stuff now obviously you can open the gate but let's just say that the flood risk that the city of houston experienced during harvey including all of the refinery complexes and all the damage that was done there 
was from rainfall. And I think for 31 billion bucks, you're only ta trying to tackle, I don't even know what percentage of the problem, not, it's maybe 50%. You've got the other flood problem that probably gets worse with the levee systems that create a bathtub that are gonna fill. I, I mean, that's kind of my common sense fent post, kind of like, what the hell will you do about Harvey? Quick, get on the phone, call New Orleans, ask them how many pumps we need. Yeah, exactly, of course. That's what you do. You, you do what New Orleans does, which is install those billion-dollar pump systems to, to empty out the damn bathtub when it fills up with uh, rainwater. It, it wouldn't, it's not hard to use your imagination and imagine this big gate that would be closed. A massive storm, Category 4 or 5, comes in, slams in with all of its, uh, all of its storm surge, slams into that barrier, and heaven forbid you could not open it up. Because when that rain comes, that's what you need to... You need to get that outflow back yeah, out to sea. Gotta let it go. And boy, I mean, you're really banking on the ability for the mechanical parts to function properly. And this is, you know, building a beach house near the shore is hard. Maintaining a boat on the water is hard with the salt air. I can't even imagine trying to keep, maintain, and make sh sure that when the, the time of action was upon us, that we could, mm -hmm. uh, that the thing would function. I mean, it is a, truly a biblical project, uh, definitely something that we are going to cover like white on rice. <laughs> One of the things about this is most people look at it and go, wow, what a waste of money. You know, people know there's going to be hurricanes. They build, they get insurance for hurricanes, for floods and storms. Uh, why do we need to do all of this? And we just don't, uh, one of the things is that they're, the maintenance cost, the state has got to pay for the maintenance forever. That's right. That's Let, usually in the project cooperation agreement with the Corps. The Corps will build it, but typically the local sponsor, which in this case is the Texas General Land Office, and is it the Port of Houston? I don't think they're officially as oh no they're they're laying low hoping somebody will build them a football stadium around there. <laughs> right exactly <laughs> but yeah the the maintenance long-term maintenance responsibility typically falls to the state which is a big ticket item and and you know we keep cutting taxes in texas all that. that's one of the main things that uh, lieutenant governor wants to do right now is right. cut taxes right i <clears throat> realize that if i want services i have to pay taxes uh, there's some certainly some tax waste money waste out there but saying cutting you're going to cut your taxes in half just because it sounds good and will get you reelected is going to put us in a world of hurt and that, you can go back to right now the corps of engineers is responsible for the dams and and other things around the state the country a corps commander that i know well retired a few years ago and he said you know i retired early because uh we're responsible for all this stuff, but Congress never gives us enough money to fix the bridge. Mm -hmm. These things have a 50-year lifespan. We have bridges and dams all over the country that are substandard and should have been replaced 15, 20 years ago, and they're not doing it. And he didn't want to have his name smeared in that, so he's out in the private service. Is that Waterworth? Not that. Which colonel was <laughs> Yeah, those old colonels. I love those, the old Cork district colonels, and there's a couple of them around in Houston. Oh, they're a lot of fun. And uh, they know a lot, and they're, they're interesting to talk to. Well, you know, uh, Ellis Pickett, chairman of the Upper Texas Coast Chapter of the Surfrider Foundation, uh, what a treat to have you on the American Shoreline Podcast today. Yeah, indeed it is. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening to the show. Uh, again, be sure to subscribe 
subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Catch all of the podcasts on the American Shoreline Podcast Network by subscribing. Be sure to check out the best coastal news website in the world, coastalnewstoday.com. 